0: Welcome to Community Hope Podcast. We pray that the word of Christ would dwell in you richly as you listen and that you would be encouraged in Christ. Good morning. Um, we're going to be continuing our series on the parables this morning, on this uh, July 4th morning. And... Uh, to this parable I'm going to share with you this morning is, is not really well known. It's just a short one. It's about just four verses long. Um, to kind of lead into that, I just wanted to share a story uh, from the news. And it, it actually concerns that couple there in the, in the middle. It, I think it must have been back in February of this year. They went uh, to see a listing of a house, the house that's in the upper left-hand corner uh, of the screen there. And um, this house is listing for like $5.1 million. This is in southern Florida. Beautiful house, right? So they go through this thing, and about uh, a month or a month and a half later, they go back to the, uh, the house, the owner, still listed, and they go like, hey, you know, we're getting married. We'd love to have our wedding and our wedding reception uh, at this house. Would that be okay with you? And the guy goes, no, no. Uh, You know, this is my house, you know, you got to buy this house right here. So they decided to go ahead and have their wedding and their wedding reception there anyway. And so they sent out invitations to all their friends. They're going like, this is a formal wedding and a beautiful place. I mean, it is a beautiful place, right? It's got its own bowling alley and tennis courts and theater. It's got this huge, uh, beautiful swimming pool It's got this big lake on the property. The house is like 16,000 square feet, and it's got an 80-foot bar and everything you you ever want, okay? So they send out these invitations. They go like, wedding's going to be on Saturday, 4 o'clock, and reception goes till after midnight with dancing and everything, and then Sunday, a brunch at noon uh, till 4 p.m. And uh, so the morning of the wedding, they show up there, and the guy who owns the house uh, goes, like, what are you doing here? He go like, well, we're having our wedding here. The guy's going, no, you're not, you know. And, and the guy goes, yeah, but God told me that we're going to have our wedding here. And the guy, no, he didn't. Just get out of here. He finally has to call the police and get, get him out of there. And I thought, this is kind of interesting because it's a nice little parallel to a problem, I think, that we many times uh, see in the spiritual realm. And that is we kind of mix up, like, who owns the place And who are like the tenants and who are the you know the visitors or whatever uh, the interlopers the prospective buyers or whatever it is but we forget who the owner is and in this parable that's in luke chapter 17 jesus is going to reinforce hey here's the way things really actually work and he leads into this parable with some, what I think are pretty tough instructions for his disciples. And this is for you and me. He's going like, look, this is what I want you to do. And it's a couple of things. And the first thing is is this idea of righteous responsibility. So it says, Jesus said to his disciples, things that cause people to stumble are bound to come, but woe to anyone through whom they come. Jesus goes, hey, sin happens, people are going to sin. But he's going, woe to the person who's actually getting people to sin, who's urging people to sin, who's tempting people to sin or enticing them into that. And then he says, it would be better for them to be thrown into the sea with a millstone tied around their neck than to cause one of these little ones to stumble. So watch yourselves. This is a, a word where he's going, look, at you are responsible for the people who are around you and I guess this is a great word for those of us who are parents, grandparents, people who have responsibility for young ones. And I think all of us, in, to some extent, do. I mean, I think about things like, just things that cause people to sin. You know, the way we dress, that's important. You know, that whole idea. There's a place for real modesty. There's the things that we put into the hands of of young people or people who are, you know, are they really capable of like dealing with this kind of stuff? The entertainment that we share with each other. I think about the fact that I, you know, I teach school and I got young people who are hearing my words, and I got to make sure that I never encourage anybody, even indirectly, to do something that would be wrong or offensive to the Lord. You and I function with, whether we know it or not, as counselors of people. We're continually talking to people and. Hearing about their problems, and we got to be careful too that we're not, even in a well meaning way, encouraging people to do things that are wrong. So we have a responsibility to one another. And then Jesus goes on and he talks about reconciliation and he's talking about relentless reconciliation. So he says, If your brother or sister, talking about like fellow believers here, sins against you, rebuke them. You know, he goes, Correct that person. And if they repent, forgive them. Even if they sin against you seven times in a day and seven times come back to you saying, I repent, you must forgive them. That's crazy talk, isn't it? I mean, he's going like, you know, there's somebody in your life that's just annoying you again and again, and they're just like treating you badly. He's going, keep pressing for reconciliation. Keep forgiving. And, I, you know, there are people that come into our lives that are just like painful, you know, and I think about all the times that, like, I hear about, you know, marital relationships where people just get fed up with one another and and give up. And he's going, no, don't give up. Reconcile. Do that. Do that. Do everything that you can. Keep forgiving. Keep forgiving. That's this is hard stuff. Hard stuff. It reminded me of a story that I read about a guy named Mauricio Estrella. Uh, This guy was having this terrible day and the big thing that was really weighing him down was how he had just been treated and mistreated and mistreated by his estranged wife and this was still going on and it was just like, it was just weighing him down and he gets into work and uh, they go, it says on his computer screen, your password has expired. And he's going, this is not big, but I don't need this in my life right now. But then he thought, you know, if I got to change my password, and they're making me do this, maybe what I ought to do is is come up with a password that could change my life. And so he changed his password to forgive her. So every time that he would log in, he'd be reminded of what he needed to do. He said that actually changed his life, you know? Now, you know, I go like, good for you, but it's also hard for us in those times where it's just been painful and painful and painful. How do we do this? And I understand what happens next in, this, in the scripture here. The disciples said to the Lord, increase our faith. You know what they're saying? This is too hard. They're going, we don't have enough faith to do this. This is impossible. And then Jesus responds, and he replies, no, it's not too hard. He goes, if you have the faith if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it will obey you. He goes, you could do impossible things with the smallest amount of faith. In other words, he's going, look at, I have empowered you. You can do it. And then Jesus goes on at this point, and he tells this parable. So I want to show this to you, and I, I'm going to call this... Well, Oh, yeah, just a summary here is, It's not a question Jesus is saying of, can I do it? It's a question of, will I? And that has to do with all the things, the commands that, he's, that he lays upon us. So this is what I would call a parable of the servants from Luke 17, 7 to 10. So I'm going to read this, this short parable to you. He says, suppose one of you has a servant plowing or looking after the sheep. Will he say to the servant when he comes in from the field, come along now and sit down to eat? Won't he rather say, prepare my supper? Get yourself ready and wait on me while I eat and drink. After that, you may eat and drink. I mean, here's the picture, right? So it's like you've been working and working and working. You know, it's manual labor. You're out there in the fields and everything. You're tired you're hungry, you come in and you're going like, okay, I can't wait, I need the food. And he goes, wouldn't the the master of the servant say, hey, get my supper ready, feed me, and then you can have your food. Will he thank the servant because he did what he was told to do? So you also, when you have done everything you were told to do, should say we are unworthy servants we have only done our duty he's going look at i'm going to tell you stuff to do that's hard stuff that's going to maybe wear you out it's going to be like wow this is like this is more than other people seem to have this is hard, this is more than i can bear he's going when you do it don't feel like you're being a hero don't feel like you're being a martyr he's going hey Say to yourself, we are unworthy servants. We've only done our duty. This is what we were supposed to do. It's a hard word, isn't it? You know, Jesus is saying real faith has an attitude of unconditional service to the master Jesus. We're going, Lord, you're the master, and so I'm at your disposal here. Tell me what you want me to do, what you're commanding me to do, and I'll I'll do it. And I may not be sure exactly how far this is going to go, but I'm at your service, unconditional service. Now, I think this is hard, and I think you know this too. And I think it's hard for a couple of reasons. One is, let me get back to that picture there, is that we're Americans, right? As we celebrate the 4th of July of this great country, I think back to, like, just the story of how this country was founded and really the whole idea of freedom from tyranny, right? So you got this king who's like making these demands and it's like we're going like, no. And this is founded on this whole idea that, hey, we, we have um, inalienable rights that have been given to us by our creator. And the history of our country has been a history of like understanding how, you know, we can be freed from the demands of these people people who put these things upon us. It took us some years to finally realize, hey, this applied to everybody here in the country, including the slaves. But there's been a process of being freed up, right? So we talk a lot about all the freedoms and the rights that we have. But then we eventually get to the point where we're going, yeah, but what about God? You know, I mean, so where does he get off telling me what to do? It's just our natural American, I think, response. We're independent people. You know, and we get this idea that we're kind of like the center of the whole story. I was thinking about, like, just imagine this hypothetical scenario here. Let's say that I, I score this job as an extra in what appears to be a blockbuster film. They're doing this film, and it's going to be about a great white shark that just keeps attacking people off the East Coast, okay? So I get this, like, part as an extra and they go, like, we need a bunch of people who are going to be in a scene where it looks like the shark is attacking and people got to run in out of the water in panic onto the beach. And so where that arrow is pointing right there, that's me. That's my part. I'm the guy, you know? And so I'm like, ah, yeah, I'm a movie star, you know? So I tell all my friends, yeah, I got, I'm in this movie. You know, I got this, I got this big part right here. And as I'm anticipating the release of this film, with my with my part here running in off the beach, I'm going like, yeah, I can just imagine they're going to call this like, you know, Jim's miraculous escape, or Fensky and the Fish, you know. <laughs> and then what happens is I, I go to the movie and it's Jaws. Going like, what's up with this? You know, I get it's not about me. It's about some kind of like. Animal? just is ridiculous. And all these other people get this kind of big building. But don't you think that that's the way we kind of view life? Like, we're the center of the whole thing, aren't we? And everybody else is kind of like supporting actors. You know, like, I see there's Jojo. Hey, she's got an important part in my film today, you know? You know, this, this, we have this, like, scenario here where Jim gets up and talks and she gets to be one of the people who listen Oh, and here comes a guy delivering, like, pizza or something. He gets a little walk-on cameo roll in my film, you know? And, but we see life that way, don't we? And we kind of think that we're the center of everything. And people tell us, hey, you deserve to be happy. You have a right to be happy, you know? It's kind of like, yes, it's, it's all about me. And Jesus is going, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, you know? I'm God here. You're not You're the servant. That's who you are. You're playing a part in the big story, but the story is really ultimately about me. And I think we also have a problem as believers, as modern believers in this whole thing, too. It isn't just our kind of American way of looking at things. Francis Chan, in his book Crazy Love, he says, We Christians have an inaccurate view of God. We see him as a benevolent being who is satisfied when people manage to fit him into their lives in some small way. Isn't that that true in so many ways? We forget that God never had an identity crisis. He knows that he's great and deserves to be the center of our lives. Jesus came humbly as a servant, but he never begs us to give him some small part of ourselves. He commands everything from his followers. I thought, how many times haven't I heard people say, well, You know, God's asking us to do this, or Jesus asks us to do that. I don't see that anywhere in a Bible. He's always going, do this. He's commanding us to do this. He's saying, hey, I'm the Lord. I'm the Lord. Um, It reminded me of a story that I read in a book by uh, R.C. Sproul called Holiness of God. And he was talking about, he was teaching at a, uh, a Bible college, a Christian college, and he was teaching a freshman theology course. And he had uh, 250 students in this course. And uh, the first day of the course, he goes, look, it, a lot of your grade in this course is going to be based on three papers that you've got to write. So there's going to be one, one month, one another month, one another month. And he says, these are very important papers. And he said, there's going to be no excuse for anybody being late with them. He said, unless you're in the hospital or you've had the death of someone in your immediate family, they have to be in on time. Do you understand? Yes, yes, all 250 of them nod their heads. Yes, we we get this. So the first due date comes up. You know, it's like October, right? First due date comes, 250 students, 225 have the paper done. 25 didn't, don't have it done. Oh, and they're all like, oh, worry, you know? They go like, ah, oh, you know, Professor Sproul, you know, we... We're just freshmen here, you know. We, are, we aren't used to the demands of college. And it, it's, you know, so we kind of fell behind. And you understand how it goes. And, and, you know, give us a break. Please give us a break. And he goes like, he listens to them, and he goes, okay, yeah, I'll, I'll let it go this time. But don't let it happen again. Oh, no, no, we've learned our lesson. So another, the month passes, and it's a second due date, 250 students. This time, 200 have it done. And the, other, the ones who come in this time, they're not quite as like desperate as the ones before, but they go, oh, you know, I, I'm not quite there. I don't have it quite done. And they got one excuse and another. Please give us a break. And he goes like, all right, but this is the last time this is going to happen. Well, you know what happens the next month, Right. 150 kids have the paper done. The other ones are pretty nonchalant about it. You know, like, hey, I'll be getting it in pretty soon. Hey, trust me on this, you know. He's going, hey, Mulvaney, do you have your paper? Uh, No. He goes, F. He goes like, Jones, do you have your paper? No. F. Jones goes, that's not fair. He goes, Jones, I seem to recall that last month you didn't have your paper in on time either. You get an F for that as well. You want fairness? You're going to get fairness right here. And Sproul says this. He says the normal activity of God involves far more mercy than I showed those students with their term papers. Isn't that true? I mean, if you think about even the trajectory of our own lives, think of how many times have we just kind of blown God off straight away and just even planned sins ahead of time, assuming he's going to forgive us for those things. We presume upon the grace of God. And Jesus is going, no, 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 it isn't. Remember who you are. Remember what's going on. I'm the master right here. You are the servants. And he's calling us back to understanding who he is and and how much he has done for us and what we need to respond with. You know, what's interesting is after Jesus tells this parable, there's a number of stories of what happened in his ministry that follow this up where people just really went, you know what, I can't do it. There were deal breakers in their lives where they counted the cost and said the cost is too high. One that happens right away is a story of like 10 lepers. And I think maybe most of you know the story, but Jesus heals these guys of this like, horrific, fatal uh, disease. And uh, they're healed as they're going away from him after asking him for healing. And only one of them comes back. And Jesus asks, didn't I heal ten men? Where are the other nine? Has no one returned to give glory to God except this foreigner? And Jesus said to the man, stand up and go. Your faith has healed you. And you wonder, where was the faith of the other guys? Is it possible he just had this attitude of entitlement? You know, have we, have we sometimes kind of fallen into that, our, that in our lives as well where we've gotten blessings from the Lord and just assumed that we had been the, the ones who triggered those, those blessings, those times we just kind of assumed it was going to happen, times when the, the thank yous came a lot less than the anger when our prayers didn't get answered. That attitude of entitlement is kind of a, can be a real deal-breaker and then you think of also the love of money. So in the next chapter, Jesus runs into this rich young man. And the guy goes, hey, I want to follow you. And, 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 Jesus, and he, tells Jesus, he tells Jesus, I've been good. I've been following your commands. And when Jesus heard his answer, he said, there's still one thing you haven't done. Sell all your possessions, give the money to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. You never know, you know what Jesus is going to call an individual too, right? And this guy He says, I want you to take your savings, you know, give give it to the poor, and then you come follow me. You can be one of my disciples. But when the man heard this, he became very sad for he was very rich. It was too high a price for him to pay. He's going, I don't think I can be a servant with that. Money can be a real obstacle right there. Last week, I I mentioned this book by Beckett Cook that I read called A Change of Affection. And uh, when Beckett became a believer he was really zealous to go to his friends and, and share the gospel with them. And a number of them uh, began to follow the Lord. And he had this friend named Lucas who owned a, uh, owned a furniture store in, um, in West Hollywood. And he invited Lucas to church. And Lucas came to church. And Lucas heard the gospel message. And he goes, I, I, I love this. This is great. I'm, this is such an attractive thing. I haven't heard this before. He says, I'm going to be back but then he didn't come back the next week or the week after. And finally Beckett finally ran into him in the furniture store uh, one day. And he goes, hey, you didn't come back to church. And he said, you know what? I, I love the message of the gospel, he said. But I went on the church's website and I found that you guys hold to the biblical view about sexuality. And I, 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 can't, I can't go with that. And Cook says this. When I boldly urged him to choose Christ over his sexual identity, he became flustered. I explained to him what was at stake, but he asked how he could be expected to give up such a nice life with his boyfriend. Uh, Lucas, like the rich young man, had chosen something that was more important to him than Christ. He counted the cost and decided not to deny himself. And so these deal breakers, you know, it's like, whoa, whoa. Am I willing to become that servant that Jesus is saying? That's that's which I'm the master wants you to unconditionally follow me, to to make that effort to follow me in spite of where wherever it's going to lead. You know, paradoxically though, what's interesting is that God's servants are God's friend. Friends, we look at this whole thing here and we go like, this is just another tyrant here this is like george the how can i how can i live with this how can i go with with a god who's like this but what's interesting is sometime later jesus talked to his disciples and this was on the night before he went to the cross to pay the price for sin to bring us that reconciliation between god between god and us And he told his disciples, he unfolded to them in three chapters the whole plan and how he had to go to the cross, what that was going to mean, and how he was going to send his spirit to empower us to do all the things that he's calling us to do. And then he said to them this in John 15. He said, "'You are my friends if you do what I command. "'I no longer call you servants because a master doesn't confide in his servants.'" Now you are my friends, since I have told you everything the Father told me. You didn't choose me. I chose you. I appointed you to go and produce lasting fruit so that the Father will give you whatever you ask for in my name. This is my command. Love each other. He circles back to those teachings in Luke 17 where he talked about loving one another, even if it's a costly thing that we've got to keep pursuing. But I thought what was interesting about this, he's going like, you know, I called you my servants, but you've been serving me, and I want you to understand you're my friends because you're getting it. You're getting it. And this is one of the awesome things about being servants of Christ, is that as as we servants of Christ come to know him better, his friendship with us is revealed. And we start to realize, hey, all these things that he was telling us to do they were good things. They all were good things for us. And these things he was telling us, no, I don't want you to do that, those were things that he knew weren't good for us at all. He was our friend. You know, the, the analogy that I, I thought of right here was when my son Adam was in, in the Marines. And he went through that, that basic training. And it was horrific. It was horrific. You know, And they had these drill sergeants, so just get into your face about everything. And I remember, these guys are scary. I remember going out for his graduation out in San Diego, and the drill sergeants addressed us. And, and I was, I'm going like, I'm a parent, I'm not even a Marine. I'm scared to death of these guys. If I don't do what they say, what, they're going to kill me. You know, And I know that in the first couple of weeks of basic training, it's like these Marines, oh, these guys are horrible. They're terrible. They hate me. It's awful. But as time went along and they saw the results of that, they started realizing, hey, these guys are doing this for my good. And they grew in their respect. I don't know if they ever came to love the drill sergeant. You know what I'm saying? But they started realizing, this guy's a friend. He's not an, he's not an enemy. And that's what we start to realize is we start living for the Lord. Our eyes are open. Um, it, there was a story that Craig Rochelle uh, tells in this book that I'm reading right now, called "Winning the War in Your Mind." He, his father was a professional baseball player, and he himself uh, loved baseball as he grew up. And when he was in the eighth grade, he was on a, a good team, and uh, they got into the, they got through the playoffs, and they got to the championship game. Craig was going to pitch, and so he, that championship game, and so he was praying fervently that God would protect him and prepare him for that game that he was going to pitch. And the night before the game, he went to the batting cages. uh, And he thought, you know what, this is a big game and I'm going to go into the cage that's got the fastest pitches. The ones that typically it's like college, you know, ball players or minor league players would go to. And he gets in the cage and the first pitch is inside and it's coming faster than he's used to and it hits him right in the hand and shatters a bunch of bones in his hand. Obviously, his championship game is not going to happen, right? And it's, his baseball career is put on, like, super hold. And during that time, he ends up, his family ends up moving to a little podunk town in, in Oklahoma and leaves all his friends behind. He's just, like, discouraged. And it's, uh, it turns out, though, as he's getting in there and he's getting better, it's tennis season. Now, he's never played tennis before. But he goes, like, I'm going to try out tennis. So he tries out tennis, and uh, he makes the team. I mean, this is a small town, right? So he makes the team, and uh, he, he gets better and better at it. And the next year, he's, like, one of the top two players on the team. And by the time he's a senior, he's, like, uh, you know, his, his team wins the state championship, and he gets a full-ride scholarship to a major university as a, with a full-ride tennis scholarship. He goes to this college and while he's at this college he joins this christian fellowship and he really comes alive for for the lord in fact he's like known in this college for being a jesus freak and this girl comes up to him one day and she goes like you're such a jesus freak there's this girl here uh at college here she's a jesus freak too and you ought to meet her uh you'll probably end up marrying her and so he goes like well that's interesting and so he makes it a point to meet this girl He ends up falling in love with her, and they get married. And now they have six kids, and he's like a Christian minister who's doing great things for the Lord, and she's working side by side with him. And he says this, and why did this happen? Because of what God didn't do. He didn't answer my prayer to protect me and prepare me for the championship baseball game. You know, the Lord opens our eyes, doesn't he? As we go along with him and we know him more and more, we start realizing, hey, that stuff... That I felt like he was like drill sergeanting me and beating me up and putting me through that stuff, or that stuff that he told me that to do, and I and I thought this is too much, or tell me to quit. And I thought, no, I love that. We start realizing that was all for my good. And he's my friend. And I think that's what that where this parable goes. You know, he's going, look at I want you to understand that you're my servants, and I want you to trust me unconditionally and know that you're going to start realizing as the time goes along that you're my friends and my friendship is forever. So let's, let's pray. Father, as uh, we come to you this morning, we want to thank you uh, for all that you've done in our lives. And a lot of it doesn't even make sense at this point. It just seems so pointless maybe to some of us as we look at, at what's going on or what's going on here. And... Uh, I want to pray, Lord, that you would uh, open up our eyes. First of all, I want to pray, Lord, that you would uh, help us to understand that you are God and we are not and that we need to trust you unconditionally. If there's anybody here this morning that's just having trouble, just trusting you enough, Lord, I just pray that you would work that in, in their hearts. And Lord, I also pray that you would open up our eyes to see your friendship, and all these things that have happened in our lives. And just bring us to that point of just feeling that, understanding that, and trusting you all the way. And I pray this in in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about Community of Hope, go to www.cohchurch.com. God bless you today.